Amen. So John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38 is our passage for this morning, brothers. Turn there, John 13, verses 21 through 38. We are, as you know, in the just starting off this series called Lessons in the Upper Room. It's a standalone series, and yes, we're in the Gospel of John, but it's a uh, really an opportunity to focus our attention on this wonderful upper room discourse, as people call it. And so I've titled the message this morning, Our Sacrificial Savior, and really what we can learn from our sacrificial Savior. I'm sure that as you look back at your own life and your own Christian pilgrimage, there are examples that stand out to you of maybe individuals who were a huge model uh, for you in a particular area of life. For me, it was this older man back in college who no matter what was going on in my life, he seemed to always be available to me. Um, he used to pick me up for Bible studies on Friday nights. He, he, they used to host a Bible study that we were a part of. But this guy was always there. He was a very sacrificial servant. If I needed a ride, he was there. If I needed uh, my, if I, my car broke down, which it did a couple of times, as that tends to happen for college and career students a lot, right? Broken down cars. He was there. If I needed counsel in my life, he was there. If I needed, if I had some crises that was taking place, he was there to encourage me and to exhort me. And he was not afraid to say the hard things. This man was a, a model of sacrifice. But even through that example of sacrifice, as he was there for me, laying down his life, so to speak, for me, there were other things that I gleaned from him in the process of him being there for me. I learned, for example, just traits about this man that were so instrumental for my life as a young man early on. Uh, I learned from him just his trust in the Lord no matter what was going on. He had a very strong faith. And the substance of his faith really... Uh, was derived from his high view of God. He had a very high view of the Lord. I remember one particular time when on a Friday night he picked me up for a Bible study, college Bible study, and I'm ranting and raving about all the stuff that's going on and the difficulties and all of that with extended family. And after a few minutes of this, he sort of looks over at me and, and he just kind of says, Kempis, I don't know what kind of God you worship, but the God that I worship, he's got this, right? <laughs> right? It was a humbling moment, but that's the kind of guy that he was, strong faith, and what gave substance to his faith was his high view of God. He, I learned from him how to deal with difficult people, how when people abandon him and people burn him, if you want to put it that way, how he responded to them with love and kindness, how he responded to difficult circumstances. You know, we all need to be men like that, right? Self-sacrificial servants who are laying down our lives for other people, and none of us have arrived None of us can do that perfectly, but even as we look at Jesus in the upper room, we see a self-sacrificial servant who was the perfect model of sacrifice, one who sacrificed his life even to the point of dying for sinners such as you and I, who deserve hell and condemnation. But just like in the case of my, of my friend, as we look at Jesus' example of sacrifice, we also learn many other things about him as he goes to the cross that are life-altering kinds of things. That if you, if you grab a hold of these characteristics of Jesus, what he modeled, you and I will grow and grow to be more and more men who are exemplifying godliness in our lives, right? So there's much to glean from Jesus. We can learn from him here in the upper room how he navigated through such things like betrayal. How many of you have been betrayed in your life? Yes, maybe explicitly or implicitly. We can learn from Jesus how he handled that. How did he handle difficult circumstances? Not only his death, but other difficult circumstances in his life as the God-man. How did he handle challenging relationships? 
like the abandonment of those closest to him who are all going to desert him as we're going to see here in the upper room as it's going to be revealed. This is what we get to do as we continue to study the upper room discourse. So it's very applicable to us where we're at as individual men and collectively and even as missional men in the midst of a wicked, wicked and perverse generation, right? It's here that we get a chance as Jesus partakes of this Passover meal with his disciples to, to glean something from the heart of our Savior. What was it that he was consumed with his latter hours of life? It's an emotion-packed night, as you remember, as we saw three weeks ago, because this is the night of his betrayal. This is the night when Jesus is going to suffer greatly like no man has ever suffered in the flesh. This is the night when Jesus is going to, to die. And so as we look at this, this passage, I want us to hang our thoughts today on really three priorities that Jesus modeled for us as he soon faced death. Okay, I want us to learn first and foremost from Jesus' sacrificial example that you and I must be men who embrace God's providence in our lives. Embrace God's providence in our lives. Not in all of life, but especially in moments of great trial and affliction. Here we find the God-man, the Lord Jesus, our Savior, on the verge of sacrificing his life. And brothers, he embraces suffering because he lives mindful of the providence of God. Because he lives mindful of God's total governance over all of the affairs of creation, including the sacrifice of Jesus himself, of his own life. Watch this. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, and we might ask what things to be reminded, well, Jesus has just begun to reveal, if you remember, the identity of the traitor. These things. Up until now, Jesus had, has held that information tight to his chest. But now he's in prep mode for his disciples. He knows that his disciples are about to witness his suffering and his death and all of that. So he doesn't want them to be surprised or shaken by what Judas will soon do to him. And so after saying those things, right, the identity of the traitor, he's begun to have that conversation. It says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was troubled internally and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He became troubled. That is deeply agitated. He was deeply in, in sorrow. Why, Lord? Why was our Lord deeply in sorrow and agitated? Well, it wasn't because he was shocked or surprised about what Judas was about to do. He knew Judas's heart, right? He knew that this was going to happen, that Judas was going to betray him. But most likely he's troubled for a number of things, perhaps because of the utter darkness of this mutinous act of Judas. Because that impacted Jesus, right? He is, he is the light with a capital L of the world. And he's seen this man be in utter darkness. Maybe it was the, the blatant deception of this man, Judas, who had been around Jesus this whole time to be, be exposed to his goodness and his kindness and his service and his love. And Jesus is taken back by that as a man, as a man. Most of all, he's most likely troubled because he's a compassionate man. And Jesus knows that because of this defection and betrayal, Judas is about to head to a place called hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? An endless um, punishment. So our Lord is troubled here. Now, As his disciples hear this news, they're beside themselves. Look at verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom Jesus spoke. 
Mark, 20, uh, Mark 14, verse 19, which is the parallel account to this text, Mark 14, 19 says that they began to be grieved, the disciples, asking one by one, surely not I? And even the hypocrite Judas asked, is it I, Rabbi? Matthew 26, 25. And so one, of, one by one, his disciples are in genuine disbelief. They are even looking, they're asking this question, looking for some type of reassurance that it's not them, right? Genuinely. By the way, did you notice that no one suspected Judas, at least from what we find in the text? No one suspected that Judas was the guy. He had played a pretty good part all of these three plus years of being genuine, quote unquote, their response is also evidence that for three plus years, listen, Jesus treated Judas just like the others. He wasn't treating Judas like an outsider. He cared for Judas. He loved Judas. Judas was physically as close to anyone, to Jesus, as anyone else. So no one suspected that he was the one. Now, if we would rewrite the story here. Push the pause button and rewrite the story. Perhaps this is the moment when we would have Judas repent, right? When Judas would say, Jesus, I'm the man. Help me, deliver me from this wretched act. This would be that moment. But of course, that's not what happens. Verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's speaking of John the Apostle, as you know, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. John is positioned next to Jesus in the most intimate position, right? As they're lying on their side eating. If you remember, that was the, the custom. And so Simon Peter, verse 24, motioned to John, we know it's John the apostle, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Simon, looks, Simon Peter looks over to John and says, hey, ask him who he's referring to. Who is it? So that disciple, verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. If you know the morsel was that a piece of unleavened bread. And that unleavened bread would be dipped in a type of, of dipping sauce made of vinegar and various spices and dried fruit. And for the host, the custom of the day, most believe for the host to, to take a morsel like this, to dip it, and to give it to someone was an act of honor from the host for, his, for a guest. It was an act of love even, of affection, of relationship. And so verse 26 says that when Jesus had dipped this morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Notice how John accentuates the identity of this man by not only calling him by name, but also even his affiliation. He's specifically Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So that no one is confused about the identity of this one. So that everybody knows the obvious identity of who betrayed Jesus. But now the real turning point comes in verse 27. After Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. What a frightening statement, huh? Satan enters into this man, takes full control of this willfully hardened man. Judas is fully under the control of Satan. And yet, notice who's really in authority. Jesus said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. Judas needed whose permission? Satan's? 
He needed Jesus' permission. Even now, in the midst of this dark moment, Judas, indwelt by Satan, needs the permission of the king of the universe. It's Jesus who orders the enemy around. Surely Luther was right when he said the devil is God's devil. So true. Satan, through Judas, is merely doing what God in his providence had already pre-planned. Again, you would think the disciples would be straight now as to what's happening here, but that's not the case. Look at verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to Judas. Maybe they didn't hear Jesus clearly. Maybe Jesus whispered to, to Judas. We don't know specifically, but in either case, they are somehow, somehow clueless. Verse 29, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling them, buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. They just don't get it. They don't have a clue, at least now. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. He goes out in this pitch black night condition to perform his dark act of mutiny under the power and influence of Satan himself, but... But, all in fulfillment of God's word, right? Now look, Judas was completely responsible, brothers, for his prolonged attitude of indifference toward Jesus and his act of mutiny against Jesus. Amen? Absolutely responsible. And one thing that we learn as we look at Scripture, including this situation here, and this example is that the sovereignty and the providence of God never, 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 never negates, nullifies, or diminishes in any way human responsibility when somebody chooses to go after sin and rebellion, right? Nobody could ever stand back and say, well, God made me do it. No, he's sovereign over this, but you are responsible for your own actions. So was Judas. Judas chose this destructive path. Judas chose to go that direction. Even after Jesus had treated him with the same level and degree of kindness and love and service and all of that as he did the other disciples. This is why the Lord says in Mark 14, 21, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. But he says, but woe to that man, namely Judas Iscariot, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Woe. That's Mark 14, 21. See, Jesus embraced God's providence in this whole situation. He's walking through this, but he also held Judas fully responsible for what he did. Also, I want us to pause once again and consider Judas, specifically his heart and his leading to his actions here, because I don't want us to just bypass that and to lose sight of what's taking place with this man and the degree to which this man has reached just a level of rebellion and obstinacy against the Lord Jesus himself, even after all the kindness and the love and all of that that Jesus has shown toward him. St. Clair Ferguson comments this, quote, Judas is the example par excellence of the man who believes that he can never sin his way out of the grace of God. In other words, the person who keeps saying to themselves, if, it's okay if I keep doing this. After all, God is gracious. He'll forgive me when I decide that it's time to repent or to give this up. He goes on. We should remember Judas. If we ever think we can decide the point at which we will stop sinning, 
Sin deceives as well as hardens. Sin leads us to that hardness of heart and blindness of understanding which ignores the last amber light. Ultimately, even the warnings of the Son of God through the Word are silenced when we get to this point. If we yield to sin, as Judas had done in his heart, for whatever reason, sin will master us, John 8, 34. We are no longer free or able to choose the moment when we will engage in a mutiny of grace and overthrow its influence on us. Judas realized this when it was too late. At first, Judas would not repent. Eventually, Judas could not repent, end quote. He said, boy, is Sinclair Ferguson becoming Arminian there? No. He's a five-point Calvinist, baby, right? What's he talking about? He's parachuting us into the heart of a man who becomes hardened. And at least historically, if we were to go back and, and be with Judas each and every day or week, he had those moments when he was really able to repent. He could have chosen that himself. Obviously, we know in the sovereignty of God, he couldn't have done that, right? He was the instrument of betrayal in the life of our Lord. But in real time, Judas had a real choice to turn away from his mutinous act. After watching the kindness of Jesus day by day, he was there growing more and more hardened. In short, brothers, what we learn from Judas Iscariot, for all of us, lest we too be tempted, we must be careful not to treat God's grace as cheap. We must be careful as men not to secretly coddle sin in our lives and lie to ourselves saying, no worries, tomorrow I'm going to give this up, this pet sin. We must be very careful about that, of thinking just one more dainty morsel of sinful pleasure. Just one more a taste of the forbidden fruit. Then I'm going to give up that pet sin. Nah, brothers. Today is the day of repentance and confession, if that is you. May I plead with you that today is the day when you can make things right with your heavenly Father if you are a believer. And believers will always return by the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God, right? It's called perseverance of the saints. Even in the midst of our sinfulness and our struggles, the Spirit of God prompts us and doesn't leave us alone and pricks our conscience and our hearts to return back to the lover of our souls. And so if that is you, be renewed today through confession and repentance. Seek the Lord at a time when He may be found. Don't be like Judas Iscariot. Don't treat God's grace as cheap and presume upon His grace. Judas did this. Judas spent time with Jesus every single day, those three plus years. Judas listened to every sermon by Jesus. He heard the greatest preacher on an everyday basis, ministering the word privately and ministering the word publicly. He heard the greatest of sermons. Judas was there. He watched every miracle up close, yet he was the ultimate pretender, the ultimate phony, the ultimate hypocrite. I pray that none of us here today are any of those. But there's always hope at the foot of the cross. Amen? Always hope, brothers, for him who comes humble and repentant before the Lord. I pray that though we might be weak men, saved by grace, that we would be struggling, tugging, fighting men against our sin, that we would be fighting every single day by the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit to be sanctified by God's grace, refusing to give in to our sin, 
refusing to live comfortably in it, but that we would become more like Jesus. I also want you to think about Jesus embracing God's providence in all of this, in his moment of trial, and how he lived with a sense of awareness that God was governing over all of these affairs, right? In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, write that text down. Acts 1, 16 through 20, Peter tells us, as he's awaiting, uh, as this group is awaiting the Holy Spirit's arrival, that Judas's actions, he tells these people there, praying for the Holy Spirit's arrival, that all of this was in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. Peter says to these people, brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas Iscariot. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, that text tells us that everything that happened and that Jesus went through was what God had predestined to occur. And Jesus knew this. He knew this. That all that's transpiring is in accordance with the foreknowledge and providence of God. He knows that even in the midst of this terrible evil by Judas, that God's good hand is behind it all, and he embraces it. And you know what? That kind of perspective of living with a sense of the providence of God and God's governance over our lives is the perspective of every single faithful believer who walks close with God, right? Remember Joseph back in the Old Testament? After all of the stuff that his brothers did in his life, after the betrayal and try to kill him and everything, at the end of his life, he essentially comes to them and says, hey, guys, don't worry. Don't worry. What you guys meant for evil, God meant it for good. What did God accomplish through it all? Guys, he saved us all and delivered us from the hand of the Egyptians. He was a man who embraced God's providence over his life. What about us? this morning. What about us, brothers? You know, as God allows hard things in our lives, do we live by the grace of God embracing these difficulties as coming from the good hand of the providence of God? Do we live mindful of that? What do you do when God brings difficult circumstances, me included, challenging relationships, do you operate as a functional atheist or do you live God-conscious? Aware of the presence of God in your life. Aware of his good hand of providence in your life. Living mindful that, as Romans 8.28 says, that for those who love God, for you who love God, believer, and beloved by God, all things indeed work together for good for you. Do you grab on to the horns of the altar and claim that promise, Lord, as long as I am not bringing these things upon myself because of the consequence of my sin and all of that, I take whatever you are bringing to my life and I want to live well under it. Father, help me to live a life of humble dependence upon you. See, our Lord did that. You say, well, he was God. Yes, but he was also 100% man. Yes, he's the God man. And he lived with a sense of embracing of the providence of God, knowing that there was someone greater at work in everything that he was experiencing. Secondly, secondly, I want you to notice that his priority, Jesus' priority as he went to give his life for us, was to live with a sense of awareness of God's greater purposes. And I want you to write that down, prioritize as a man of God, God's greater purposes in everything that you go through, especially the hard things. Here in the context of Jesus submitting himself to God's providence, we see a twofold purpose 
for the giving of his life that our text tells us. Namely, the glory of God and love for others. In everything that Jesus was experiencing, those were the greater purposes that Jesus kept in mind. The glory of God and love. He did this for love's sake and to model love for others. Look at this. First, his sacrifice is for the ultimate priority of the glory of God. Look at verse 31. When he had gone out, speaking of Judas, Jesus said, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified. What does he mean by now? Well, now that Jesus is about to be betrayed, he means. Now that Jesus is about to be arrested and sentenced, now that he's about to be humiliated all the way to the point of being crucified on a shameless cross as a common criminal will be crucified, now, he says, is the Son of Man glorified. Opposite of what we would think. And God is glorified in him, verse 31. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Lots of references to the glory of God here in connection to the sacrifice of of Jesus. Notice first, Jesus will be glorified as he goes to the cross and one day future rules and, and reigns. You say, Pastor Kempis, where do you get that rule and reign part in verse 31? Well, notice the title Son of Man there. You see that in verse 31? Son of Man, which as we've seen before, on the one hand points to Jesus' humanity, the Son of Man, but more so of the famous Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. In that passage, Daniel speaks of the one who comes before the Ancient of Days, specifically God the Father, and he is like the Son of Man. And this one one day, of course, we know is the Messiah who will one day reign and rule. And so think about this. Even though Jesus will suffer and die, he will be glorified when he rises and ascends into heaven. His sacrifice will be followed by exaltation into glory. Second, not only will Jesus be glorified, but God will be glorified in him at the end of verse 31. That is, the Father will receive glory through Jesus' sacrifice as well. How so? And that Jesus fulfills everything the Father has pre-planned from before the foundation of the world. The Father has planned this sacrifice of Christ. And Jesus comes to bring glory to the Father. And then thirdly there in verse 32, in essence, that verse tells us that God will glorify the Son in the giving of his life. So the Father returns the favor. Jesus is glorified as he goes to the cross. Jesus glorifies the Father as he fulfills God's eternal plan. And then the Father glorifies Jesus. And then in a bit, Jesus will speak about the Spirit of God who is going to come. And the greatest purpose, brothers, mark it, of the Holy Spirit's arrival is to make much of the Son. The Spirit of God was 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 brought into the universe, into our world, in a different kind of way, to indwell believers so that he makes much of Jesus in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners and in an ongoing way in the hearts of his people. The Spirit comes to glorify the Son, to exalt the Son to the glory of the Father. It's a Trinitarian glory. Amen? A lot of glory going around, but the triune God is the sole recipient and object of all of this glory. Listen to me. Jesus's greatest purpose for dying was to bring God maximum glory, was to make much of the triune God. We sort of tend to 
makes salvation way too much about us. We should be grateful, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and embrace what God has done for us in saving us. But brothers, first and foremost, we must remember that Jesus, Jesus executed salvation for the supreme purpose that he would make much of God. That God would be glorified. And so salvation is not first and foremost, emphasis on that, on priority, about us. It's about him and his glory. That's what those verses are telling us. Jesus kept that priority in mind, that greater purpose in mind of the glory of God. And yet, as we were studying the doctrine of salvation this past weekend in our theology class with the Institute, we were marveling at the fact that God could have chosen any way to magnify himself that he wanted. But the way that he did it, the way that God chose to glorify himself was through the redemption of sinners. Oh, relish in that, brothers. Like this beautiful diamond called salvation that you just need to, to relish in every day and be beholding it, that it would propel you to greater holiness and greater obedience. He chose to glorify himself in the redemption of sinners. Sinners who deserve hell and condemnation. Sinners who were rebels against his rule. Sinners who every single day prior to Jesus lived godless and hopeless and helpless. It was then at that moment that God stepped in through Jesus to perform a rescue operation for us. Brothers, I hope that that never becomes old news to you. I hope that you never, never, ever, ever cease to savor the redemption of God in your life. And if you do, that you would confess that from the heart. Because a failure to worship God supremely is a sin in the heart, isn't it? Before any actions follow. Lord, I want to I love you all the more. Please forgive me this morning for not loving you as I should have yesterday. Not waking up this morning with a great sense of wanting to draw close to you and be near to you and love you and appreciate you for who you are. That's a sin that we must confess. Not worshiping God supremely. I hope that you never come to the point where you stop marveling at what God has done for you and saving you from hell and condemnation. I would also add that just as God's glory was Christ's purpose, it should be our purpose as well to glorify God in everything that we do. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 say? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I love that. <laughs> he says even the most mundane things of life, like eating and drinking, even in those mundane things of life, glorifying God is to be your greatest purpose. It's in the little things and the big things. All of life, Romans chapter 12, is to be lived as a living sacrifice, as worship before our Heavenly Father. So in our daily living, this should be the first question you ask yourself. Will this attitude that I'm having right now, that I'm coddling or cultivating in my life, will this priority, will these words, will these actions, will these purposes, will these goals glorify God? We should be asking that first and foremost. Will this pursuit glorify God? Will this, this um, business glorify God? Is it glorifying God? In your decision making, this should be the first question that you ask yourself. Will this life choice glorify God? Will this direction glorify God? 
Will this life change glorify God? That is to be our greatest question each and every moment of the day. Boy, that kind of puts things in perspective for us, doesn't it? That if Jesus gave his life for the greater purpose of glorifying God, that should be us. Even in the little things of life. We also learn, secondly, that he gave his life for the purpose of showing us a new kind of love. So under that second main point, God's glory, right, is a greater purpose. And love, a new kind of love Jesus modeled for us. Look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I love the tenderness with which Jesus speaks there in verse 33, don't you? Little children, these are grown men right there. Tough grown men, these disciples. Rough and gruff. He calls them little children with such affection. But then he also tells them about the reality of things, that he's about to depart from them as he's been telling them that he would, and at least for now they cannot follow him. But in the meantime, what are they to do? Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Wait a minute. I think Jesus must have spoken and modeled for these disciples love. So in what sense is this a new commandment? In what sense is this something, something unique? Well, he tells them, doesn't he? Look at the text. He says, just as I, underline the I, have loved you, you also are to love one another. I think he's speaking of a new quality of love here. I think he's speaking of, of the supreme kind of love, which is a Christ-like kind of love, unlike nothing else that they've ever experienced, even that they see in this world. What kind of love has Jesus modeled for them? Well, he's modeled for them a self-sacrificial, servant-oriented kind of love, which is completely the opposite of the worldly love that they're accustomed to. That is all about lording it over people. That is all about getting rather than giving. About exploiting others rather than serving others. And doing what is intrinsically beneficial for others. Jesus is modeled for them self-sacrificial, servant-oriented kind of love. He stooped down to wash the disciples' feet. Didn't he just do that? On the heels of that, he says, here's a new commandment for you. Love as I have loved you. And he had just given them the example of that. He also modeled for them a stretching kind of love, didn't he? How so? In that he actually loved his own enemy there in the upper room, Judas Iscariot. That's how Jesus loved. He loved enemies. By even loving Judas Iscariot for three plus years, even to the point of washing his feet, he's also about to show them a new kind of love by going to the cross and dying not for people who are worthy, who are attractive, who are likable, but he's going to die for rebel sinners who otherwise, were not for Jesus, deserve hell and condemnation. So it's self-sacrificial, servant-oriented kind of love, and it's love that is a stretching kind of love for your enemies. I love that. Jesus says, you love this way. As I have loved you, self-sacrificially, with a servant's heart, the kind of love that is a stretching kind of love, that is a fervent kind of love, that even goes to the umph degree to love your enemies, even believers who may be sometimes acting like your enemies. Love, this type of way. And he says, this type of love is going to be a powerful witness to the watching world. Verse 35, look there. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved for, if you have love for one another. You probably have read that verse so many times, and you sort of just bypass that, but I don't think that we give that verse, brothers, enough thought. Redeemed men of God this morning, listen to me. There is something otherworldly and compelling to a watching world, even this wicked and perverse generation in which we are living. There's something compelling and otherworldly to these people when they see Christians sincerely, authentically loving one another, even in the worst moments of life. There is that in this world. I have met some of them, even recently. There's something appealing even to the wicked non-believer when they witness people loving one another fervently even when there is weaknesses that are exposed. That's what makes biblical Christianity more authentic and sincere and powerful more than anything else. That the Spirit of God allows us by His grace, to be able to look at one another in the eyes and confess our sins to one another, James chapter 5, and we still, even in the midst of that, come out on the other side because of the grace of God and love one another from the heart, even in the truth, brothers. That is a, a spirit-wrought thing. That may exist in some circles, some Alcoholics Anonymous group in the world, but it is superficial and short-sighted. Our goal is sanctification. Our goal is the glory of God. Our goal is to love one another. Our motive is to love one another, right? And so to love one another enough to encourage one another with the truth and to never give up on one another, that is huge. I like what that song says. Put it in perspective. I realize that there's a wishy-washy kind of love that we can talk about that the world shows. But I love that song. They will know that we are Christians by our what? Love. There's a lot of truth to that. Isn't that 1 John? John uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, fervently love one another from the heart. All of the instructions, right? On these depend the whole law and the prophets. Love, supreme love for God and supreme love for one another, right? Even our obedience to all of the laws and commands of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Ultimately, they are, they are an expression of our love for God and love for our neighbor. Love. 1, John, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 the preeminence of love. Now abide these three, but the greatest is what? Say it with me. Love. Love. So Jesus lived mindful of the greater purposes of God, his glory and love. Love for others, and so must we. Well, finally, we learn from our Lord that we must be men who are focused on God-enabled perseverance. Focus on God-enabled perseverance. Some people come to this, these latter verses here, verses 36 to 38, and they, and they focus on Peter. But I think as we think more deeply about what's going on, really the focus here is on, is on Jesus. And especially on his relentless God-enabled perseverance. Because, brothers, it's, it's Jesus who's very soon about to be abandoned by all, including Peter. It's Jesus who will be isolated by the powers of darkness, at least from a human perspective, so that Satan is pressing in on him in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking for the moment to strike. It's Jesus who is abandoned. And in the midst of that, our Lord perseveres. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, Peter and the others. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow 
afterward. Was Jesus speaking here about his death? I think he was. And one day future, Peter would join him in suffering a similar death as Jesus had suffered. But for now, Peter is swearing loyalty, swearing allegiance to Jesus and devotion. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I think Peter means this. I think Peter is zealous for Jesus. I think Peter is loyal to Jesus. I think Peter is well-intentioned here, but he's also proud, isn't he? Much too quick to think highly of himself, to think that he can stand on his own. And here comes Jesus again to help him in verse 38. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? This is how we know Jesus is speaking about his death. Truly, truly, in other words, you can bank on this, Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Boy, that must have hit Peter like a ton of bricks. That must have humbled him big time. Wounded his pride. In essence, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're not as strong as you think you are. In fact, not only will you not die with me, you will even deny the fact that you even knew me all of this time. And it it came to pass just that way. In the temple of the high priest, as we're going to see in the next few weeks. But it wasn't just Peter who denied Jesus. According to Matthew 26, verse 31, Jesus revealed that all of his disciples will soon fall away that very night. And that came to pass. All abandoned Jesus during his greatest hour of need that very night. He was left alone to be ridiculed and beaten and slapped and spit upon and publicly embarrassed, treated unjustly and with contempt. Eventually, he would go all the way to the cross and publicly shamed as a common criminal. He did all of that. And experienced all of that, brothers, alone from a human perspective, abandoned by all. So how in the world did Jesus persevere? He says, well, he's God. He's the God-man. How did he make it through this? Well, even though he was abandoned by all of his disciples, Jesus had lived, as we've seen, in humble dependence upon his heavenly Father his whole life. Right? Luke 5.16 tells us that Jesus himself would often, often throughout his ministry, slip away to the wilderness and pray. Luke again and again, especially in his gospel, speaks about the prayer life of Jesus. That Jesus was in constant communion with his heavenly father, in constant fellowship with him. And soon here... As we parachute into this moment in the upper room, and they're going to shoot out of the upper room and head to the Garden of Gethsemane, soon as Jesus sacrifices his life, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he will have multiple prayer sessions seeking the God-enabled power to persevere in the moment of trial. Multiple prayer sessions. Mark chapter 14 highlights this. Write these verses down. Mark 14, 32. He says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Mark 14, 35, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Mark chapter 14, verse 39, again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. At least four times, if not four or more, Jesus is seeking his heavenly Father. Over and over again, the eternal Son of God might have been abandoned by all, including Peter and his disciples, his beloved ones who had been with him for three plus years, but his heavenly Father is always there. And what fueled his perseverance was humble dependence upon his Father. Even now. Some of us got together this past Sunday morning, uh, your small group leaders, 
just for a, a time of equipping and mutual encouragement and all of that. And I'm so, always so encouraged by spending time with your small group leaders. And we, one of the things that we did was go into Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, that passage on spiritual warfare. And we f- spent some good time just reflecting upon that particular passage. And we were reminded that as men, we are in a spiritual war, brothers. That our enemy is fierce, he's deadly. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against spiritual forces of darkness. The nature of the battle is fierce. It's a face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat to the death. That is the picture of Ephesians chapter 6, spiritual warfare. That we are in this fierce, face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat to the death. That was the imagery that he uses to describe spiritual warfare in the Christian life. And we learn that there are various arenas where this fierce spiritual war is being fought on a continual basis. We often think, well, you know, we watch television or we're on our phones and we see something on the internet that is terrifying or whatever, like the shooting the other day in the Highland Park, and we think, boy, the spiritual battle is really bad out there. It's really bad out there. No, the spiritual battle is really bad in your heart. There is a war, brothers, a spiritual war that we are fighting even in our own hearts against our flesh, that unredeemed part of us, that part of us that still wants to function autonomously, not in dependence upon the Spirit of God. There is a war going on here in our hearts with our idols and our lusts, our evil desires. The battle wages in your home. It's not out there. It's in your marriage in your response to your spouse, in your love and tender care for her, in the way that you laid down your life for your kids, in your parenting, the battle is in our parenting, whether our kids little or older, or in our grandparenting now, as we seek to invest ourselves into our children and grandchildren continually into the future, there's a wage, a war waging. The souls of, of people are at stake, you see. There is a spiritual war happening in our workplace and out in the world in schools. If you're pursuing education as a single guy, there's a war going on in your heart as a single young man or older man for for contentment in your heart and for service and sacrifice so that you don't live self-centered as a single man. That is where the war, all of these arenas of life are where there is spiritual war happening already. And listen to me, in and of ourselves, brothers, you and I, there is no way that we can stand alone. There's just no way. And I'm floored over the years as a pastor watching men thinking that somehow, somehow they can fight this battle alone. Just go back and read Ephesians chapter 6. There's no way you could do it alone. How might we be able to stand firm? Four different times in that text, by the way. Don't ever miss it. In Ephesians chapter 6, there's a, the, the, a comfort that, that Paul gives them that you are going to be able to stand firm, stand firm, stand firm to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. But how? How? It's by standing upon the shoulders of what Jesus has already accomplished. What? On the one hand. Being reminded that Jesus, by virtue of his sacrifice, has already delivered the death blow to the enemy on your behalf. Sin no longer is master over you, for you are not under law, you are under grace. In the words of Paul to the Romans. So Christ, but secondly, he's given us all of the resources that we need to appropriate. It's not just behold Jesus and do nothing. No, it's behold Jesus and standing upon the shoulders of his victory. Look at the resources that he's given you. He's given you 
all the spiritual armor that you might appropriate it by the grace of God. And so we need to daily tap into the power source. But listen, that passage ends in Ephesians 6 verses 18 through 20 by talking about prayer. Four different times the word all is used. That you ought to be praying with all kinds of variety of prayer at all times in the spirit for all people, including for gospel progress. We ought to be in prayer all of the time. That is part of the spiritual warfare. Humble dependence upon the Lord in prayer. What a privilege, brothers, that in the same way that Jesus had access to the great general of the universe, his father, even in the upper room or throughout his life in the upper room and in the Garden of Gethsemane and at the cross, we have access now by faith in Jesus Christ to the throne room of the very living God of the universe. Are you accessing him daily? Are you seeking God-enabled perseverance, God-empowered perseverance through prayer, through dependence upon him? We need him, don't we? And we need one another, brothers. I'm glad that you're here. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for the opportunity once again to hear the heart of our Lord and to hear, Lord, the precious words to his disciples, words that even as we're going to learn next week are words of comfort and encouragement. I'm so floored by the fact that even in his moment of great trial as the God-man, our Lord Jesus was mindful of his present and future disciples and had great words of wisdom. Thank you for the opportunity to learn from him. Pray that even now, Father, as we discuss your truth, that you would allow us to speak into one another's lives in a way that is loving and in a way that is truthful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.